you please turn in your Bibles to page or to uh, Genesis chapter four, if you're using a pew Bible, that would be on page four. Genesis five, and the pew Bibles is on page four. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived, after he fathered Enosh, 807 years, and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived, after he fathered Kenan, 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Kenan lived, after he fathered Mahalalel, 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Methuselah were 969 years and he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he had fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Let's pray. Father, you have given us details that amaze us. 
that we need to know in your word for our benefit and for your glory. Please be with our pastor this morning as he explains your word to us for your glory. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Stephen mentioned the offering of praise. I did want to take just a second before we dive into our study to remind you that the first $15,000 of that uh, offering will go to the Sanfords to complete uh, the $45,000 that we had committed to set aside uh, to help them with their outfit and passage so that they can get to North Africa. Uh, the next 5000 will go to Daniel and Amy Rodas, who you saw on the video, who are uh, working uh, to plant a Spanish-speaking church on the northeast side um, to help with some support shortfall that's going to happen soon. And the rest uh, that we take after that will be to do some uh, needed repairs here in, in the auditorium. So uh, if you're a member, please look at that letter and be prepared in a couple weeks. Uh, this afternoon, actually, I'm going to be leaving town. Not forever, sorry. But uh, uh, for a few days... Um, uh, to spend some time praying and planning for 2019 for where we will be in our studies on Sunday morning. And so um, I would ask, please uh, pray for me as I do that. I want to uh, plan well and for that to be a fruitful time of prayer uh, for myself. So I would, I would appreciate that. As we come to Genesis 5, um, I want to actually ask you to Think about a question before we begin, and that is this. When do you think people are most likely to doubt God's faithfulness? To doubt God's goodness, to doubt His love, to doubt that He really has purposes for life. Is it, is it when the cancer goes into remission? Is it during the sweet days of marriage when love is both reciprocal and sacrificial? Is it when the healthy baby is born? Is it when the, our child professes faith in Jesus? Is it when the prodigal daughter or son comes over the horizon to come back home and seek forgiveness and restoration? Is it when you escape the car accident without a scrape or a scratch or the slightest of injuries? I suspect that none of us doubts God's faithfulness on those days. We shout God's faithfulness from the rooftops on these days. My guess is that we're more likely to doubt God's faithfulness and goodness and love and purposes when the tumor is malignant, or when the doctor says there's nothing else that we can do, when the daughter who seemed to know and love and serve God to this point in life turns her back and gets as far away from the things of the Lord as possible, when the spouse who once said, I do, is speaking and acting as if they don't anymore. 
when the power of sin has taken hold again in the life of your son, in the life of your spouse, in the life of your sibling, in the life of yourself. Or when you stand over a grave too soon, years too soon, decades too soon. In short, people tend to doubt God's faithfulness, goodness, love, purposes when what's wrong, when what's wrong with the world in general becomes wrong with my world in particular. When sin and its offspring, the curse, show up at the front door with suitcases packed to the gills with pain and disease and conflict and destruction and heartache and death, and they're staying for a while. So what do we do in those moments? How do we fight the fight of faith in those moments? How do we fight against doubting God? Because You see, if all we do is look at the circumstances that are right in front of us, if all we do is stare at sin and its curse right there at our front door with suitcases packed to the gills, if all we see is the torment, then we will spiral down into darkness, into despair, into hopelessness. So we need to do something else. We actually need to look somewhere else. We need to look to the Scripture. Because that's where hope abounds on every page. Even this page in Genesis 5, a chapter that we might skip over in our Bible reading plan, a chapter you might be tempted to skim, a chapter you may have just zoned out while we were reading the whole thing. You're like, who names their child Mahalalel or Methuselah? And we get so tied up in the trees that we miss the forest. But we need to dial back in. If we zoned out before, we need to dial back in because in Romans 15, Paul says that everything that was written in the past, speaking of the Old Testament, was written to teach us so that through the encouragement and through encouragement of the Scriptures and endurance, we would have hope. And that includes Genesis 5. Now, it's a historical link from Adam to Noah. Yes, but it's not just that. It's a genealogy, yes, but it's not just a genealogy. It's not just a list of names. It has something to teach us. It has something relevant for us. It actually teaches us that God remains faithful in a world cursed by sin. That's what this chapter is meant to teach us, that God remains faithful in a world cursed by sin, a truth we desperately need to know, don't we? Don't we need to know that when the curse shows up with suitcases packed? Don't we need to know that God is faithful in the midst of that? When you look at it at first glance, it seems like you hear me say that and you just heard all of that read and you say, well, that's, that's like hidden treasure somewhere in there because I'm not seeing it immediately. Well, that's all right. We brought our shovels. All right? It's there. 
We just have to clear off some of the cobwebs that come into the mind when we get to genealogies, and we need to get to what it is. Before we actually dive in, there is, there is only one detail that I want to spend any time sidetracking on, and that's these incredible long, incredibly long lifespans. Um, they are incredibly long. Hundreds of years later, Moses would write Psalm 90, and he would say that the years of our life are 70, uh, or if perhaps by strength, 80. Even after, even after this, when you read later times, you read shorter lifespans. Now, the Bible does not specifically address how this change came about. Many have tried to get to the bottom of it. Lots of theories have been put forward. And I'm just going to mention really two things. First, the Bible isn't the only ancient document to record really long lifespans. In about the 18th century B.C., there is an inscription known as the Sumerian King List, and it records a pre-flood civilization as well as that great deluge that we call the flood, and it records after that. And the king's lifespans before this flood are enormously long. And after the flood, they shorten, just like you see as the pattern happens in the Bible. They're still long, which they still are. Uh, you still have 200 and something, 175. You have these different uh, lifespans after the flood recorded in the Bible. And likewise, in this other ancient document, you have these longer lifespans. And so it's not unheard of, is what I'm trying to say in these ancient documents, that pre-flood and post-flood are very different. But above all that, dear friends, when we come to the Bible, we either come, we either come as one who receives or one who will come with a gavel in our hand to decide whether what we read is right or not. God has, God has either lied to us about these long lifespans or he has not. There are many things in the Scripture that stretch our minds, so it's not unusual for us to run into things like this. While our minds are stretched, our hearts need not doubt. God has spoken to us truly in His Word. And so, we believe. As believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we believe all of these numbers. We believe the long lifespans. But this chapter is not about long lifespans. It's not about our lifespan. It's about God's faithfulness. And so we're going to get to that now. God remains faithful in a world cursed by sin. First, I want us to think about the curse of sin. There is a rhythm to this chapter. There is a, this man lived this many years, and he fathered so and so. And then he had other sons and daughters. And then after he fathered that first so-and-so, he lived this many years. And there's that rhythm over and over. And the refrain at the end of almost every single rhythm is, And he died. This three-word phrase comes back over and over in Genesis chapter 5 to remind us that the curse of sin which was pronounced in Genesis chapter 3, remains a part of the human experience. Death expresses the summarization of every other part of the curse. Disease 
reminds us of death's imminence. Even as we watch this week as Hurricane Florence approached the coast, we see that already at least 11 have died. We're reminded of our fragility and our creatureliness and our short lifespans. We talk about the death of marriages or the death of relationships as being the worst. We talk about how habitual sin takes lives, sometimes literally and sometimes metaphorically. But death is the embodiment of what the curse is, the decay that you feel in your knees when you stand up from this pew in a little while is evidence of the decay of sin. And in this chapter, the, and he died, and he died. It's like a just steady drip of a leaky faucet that's not going to be fixed anytime soon. Not until Jesus returns. And he died. But remember how we got here. First, death was forewarned. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, God speaking to Adam says, The tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. This isn't about avoiding poisoned fruit. This is about avoiding spiritual rebellion. God says that rebellion against Him and disobedience to His Word comes with consequences, comes to death. You see, there is a way that seems right to all of us. We think we've got it figured out. We think we can figure out this life. We think we know which way to go. But the Bible says at the end that we think is right, the way that I'm going to choose, the way that I'm not going to listen to what God says, but I, I've got this, God, and I'm sure you're okay with it. God says that end leads to death. God has forewarned it, but not only God has forewarned, was death forewarned, death was doubted. You remember that? So after this, in chapter 3, the serpent, Satan, comes to Eve. One of his deceptive ploys is to deny this whole death business that God has said. So she says, uh, she says, But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. It's an empty threat, Satan says. There are no real consequences. God is a God of love, Eve. There are no consequences to sin. But love doesn't let destruction just happen. That's not loving. Under the veneer of temporary pleasure in sin... Under the veneer of the escape that some sin provides is the reality of separation from God and death. And that's why, thirdly, we remember that death is pronounced. Death pronounced after Adam and Eve's sin. God underlines that His warning in the garden was no empty threat. Death will come in Genesis 3.19. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And then death appeared. We saw it last week, didn't we? In its most heinous of forms, the worst of death, the intentional act of a human being taking the life of another, anger-driven, purposeful, premeditated murder, Cain 
murders Abel, but that's not the end of it because after that, Cain's descendant, Lamech, boasts about his murdering. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. That's what Lamech says in chapter 4, verse 23. And then death reigned. That brings us to chapter 5. Sin remains. And the way we know sin remains is because the curse remains. And he died. In fact, in Romans chapter 5, Paul speaks of death having a tight grip on the human experience. He writes, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. And then he goes on, yet death reigned. That is a really strong word. Death reigned from Adam to Moses. Because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. There is no escaping death's clinch. And it continues today, doesn't it? You woke up if you read the newspaper. I don't know if anybody actually gets a newspaper anymore and opens up the pages and turns to the pages. If you had done an obituary search for uh, September the 16th, 2018, you would have found that it's not empty. What would you be reading? You'd be reading echoes of Genesis chapter 5, wouldn't you? And he died. And she died. Of all the people on the planet, Christians are those who should take death most seriously. Apart from Jesus' return, no one that we meet, be they stranger or friend, will escape death. Everyone walks through the door of death, whether it is sooner than expected or when we thought it might come. But not everyone will walk through that door and arrive in a better place. This is the lie, the well-meaning lie, the uninformed lie that is told at so many funerals. That no matter what that person did, no matter what that person thought of God, believed, they are in a better place. The reality is, is uh, you know, this, this book that is constantly the, the bane of, of uh, faithful Christianity's existence, your best life now. Um, John MacArthur made a statement recently that, that if you are not a Christian, this is your best life now. Because what awaits is not a better place for those who do not believe. Everyone who walks through death's door, death's door doesn't arrive at a better place. There is a second death, the Bible talks about, an eternal death. Apart from God's intervention, the fact of the matter is no one will escape that death either. The perceptively moral person and the perceptively immoral, per perceptively immoral person will both suffer that second death apart from God's intervention.
But Lord, haven't we done all these things in your name? Haven't we done good things? Depart from me. I never knew you. That's what the Bible says in Matthew chapter 7. Death is both a sacred and serious reminder of the curse of sin. And so in our own lives, as, believers in, as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, then the, the prayer actually of Psalm 90 should be our prayer. Teach us to number our days so that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Help us to know our brevity. God, you are from everlasting to everlasting. We are just 70 years, maybe 80 Teach us to number that. Teach us to count it. Teach us to do everything we can to have a heart of wisdom in the days that you give us. And as we think about over the next two weeks being Jesus' hands and feet to the end of the street, we have to remember that every single person into whose eyes we look will spend eternity somewhere. And it matters what our contribution is in God's sovereign working out of that plan. It matters whether we are obedient to share the gospel. Because the curse of sin is a steady drumbeat in this fallen world. And the wages of that sin is death. But that's not all we see here. We don't just see the curse of sin. We see the faithfulness of God. You see, the darkness of the curse of sin clouds this whole chapter, and yet... The piercing light of the faithfulness of God keeps breaking through. That's the other thing that we must see. And it begins by the fact that in His faithfulness, God preserves His image in man. Look at verses 1 to 3. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, He made him in the likeness of God. Male and female he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. And Adam had, when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. God made Adam and Eve in his image to be, remember what that means, to be like him and to represent him. And through sin, that image is tainted. And yet God continues to dignify the human existence by continuing, not by removing his image, but by continuing, he perseveres with mankind. He's going to continue making men and women in his image. What I had in my mind as I read, as I thought about that was Nebuchadnezzar. You remember what happened to Nebuchadnezzar, right? I mean, sin, his rebellion against God, God leaves him to it and he goes out and he basically becomes an animal. He loses every, he loses dignity, he loses his mind, he loses all of that. And yet God, God, in His faithfulness, preserves His image. It will continue to go on. 
So, still in the image of God, every human life has dignity and value. You can never say that too much in our culture of death. Every human life. Uh, Susan and I were blessed recently to hear uh, our friend, and you know Ridley and Lisa Barron, uh, many of you do, uh, Ridley speaks at medical conferences telling the story of his son, his 18-month-old son, who 14 years ago died because of a medical error. And so God, is, God has actually opened up an opportunity for him to speak at medical conferences and tell his story and talk about uh, the forgiveness he extended both to the pharmacist and to the nurses and to the hospital and to the administrators. But in the midst of all that story... He's sitting in a room with lawyers in the hospital. He's gone away like the day has gone. This is later on. He's sitting in a room with a bunch of lawyers who are seeking to convince him that his son would have never had a meaningful life. He probably would have been a vegetable, Mr. Barron. He never would have had a job. He never would have been able to have an education. He never would have been this and this. So we can't actually value his life very highly. Every human life has value. The life that must be cared for 24-7 by the hands of others because that life can do nothing for himself or herself is made in the image of God and therefore is valuable, is worth is worth it, has dignity. Life is not about the instrumentality of a person in society. Life is about the image of God in that person. That's what gives value. And God perseveres. And every single life in this room is of value to God. And every single life in that children's ministry, in that nursery wing, has value to God. And every single life in the wombs of mothers now has value to God. And every single life in the homes that are the, that are the residences of the last possible stages of life where the person doesn't even remember who they are, much less the people around them are, that person's life has value. Why? Because they are made in the image of God. We of all people should value life. Not only is the image of God passed on, did you notice that There's some of Adam here too, right? The same image of God, but now it's not just the image of God as God made Adam in the dirt. It is the image of God as Adam tainted it through sin. So Adam's sinfulness will go on as well, which is why not only is the faithfulness of God, not is it only beautiful to see that the, the, the faithfulness of God is preserved in His image, but God also preserves His promise. God preserves His promise. What is the promise? The promise was back in Genesis 3.15. 
speaking to the serpent and cursing him, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now the serpent seems to have won the first battle here because Cain has murdered Abel. But God's promise has not been nullified. God is going to provide another, a second son, Seth. Most of chapter 4 deals with Cain's lineage until the very end. And then there's going to be a second son to replace the first. This idea of two sons is common in the Old Testament. You have have, uh, uh, Isaac and Ishmael, the two sons of Abram, and only through the line of Isaac will the promise go. You have Jacob and Esau, the sons of Isaac, and only through Jacob will the promise go. And here, long before that, you have the lines of Cain and Seth, or I need to keep the same hands, Cain and Seth, and through Seth the promise will go on. So this is, notice what Eve says. Let's just back up just before chapter 5, in in chapter 4, verse 25, Look what Eve says after the birth of Seth. God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. Another offspring. It's the same word as in Genesis 3.15 when, when God says she will, he will put enmity between her offspring and the serpent's offspring. It's that Hebrew word Zerah. It's seed. It's, it's the promise. Cain may have killed Abel, but he didn't kill the promise. Another seed has come. And then we immediately see the difference between Cain's line and Seth's line. Cain's descendants, if you recall from last week, uh, they started, you know, the farming industry. They started uh, music. Uh, They started industrial work. Seth's son, Enosh, will pave the way in faith. It is at that time that people begin to call on the name of of the Lord. Enosh calls on the name of the Lord. Calling on the name of the Lord is an act of worship that's typically done with an altar. Like in chapter 12, Abram's going to build an altar and then call on the name of the Lord there at that altar. It's something done when one longs for deliverance or salvation. Joel chapter 2, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. It involves proclaiming God's reputation and attributes. It's amazing. In in Exodus 34, God himself calls the name of the Lord. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Moses and proclaimed the name of the Lord. That word proclaimed is the same word. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. All of these things are wrapped up in calling on the name of the Lord, worshiping Him, praying for deliverance, proclaiming who He is. But that faith doesn't die with Enosh. It goes on. Look at verse 12 in chapter 5. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered 
Mahalalel, which is quite a tongue twister. If you're calling for that child who's at the top of the stairs and is in trouble, I'm wondering how much you're stumbling. You know, I mean, this is what I do, and my none of my children have. I say, I speak in dots and dashes usually when I'm calling them. It's Morse code. It says, "Come here, you're in trouble now." But this is what. This is Mahalalel, and now you know, do you know, I mean, you, you do know the one word that is common in all languages for praise, right? For praising. Hallelujah. Hallel means praise, and Yah is shorthand for Yahweh, praise the Lord. Well, here, Mahalalel, you hear it in there? Mahalalel. Same thing, praise, and El is the name of God. Praise God. This child is named Praise God or the one who praises God. The faith keeps being passed down. And then we get to a place maybe you're familiar with, which is with Enoch. Verse 21, when Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God. Notice it says that twice. Just to make sure you don't miss it. And he was not, for God took him. Enoch walked with God. This is the walk of faith in the Old Testament. This is a pattern of life. This is not a one-time decision to walk down an aisle and sign a card that says, Yes, I will walk with God. This is the day-in, day-out walk of faith with God. It can mean to follow in the footsteps of another. When you read about the kings in the Old Testament, sometimes you'll see that this particular king walked in the ways of David, his father. Same word, walked. It means he followed in those footsteps. He was a good and godly king. And sometimes it will be that he walked after the way of Jeroboam, who was an evil king who led the country into rebellion against God. Here Enoch is walking in the ways of God, a walk that God requires of all people. Micah chapter 6, he has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. And Enoch's walk with God leads not to death, but to life, to escaping death, to being taken, to being, it's it's used in other places, of being received into God's presence. The only other person to experience this is Elijah. Now, in case we just think, well, Enoch must have just been a really good law keeper, because that's the only way that you can be right with God, is that you do enough good. I mean, if my good outweighs my bad, I'm good with God, right? If I just keep the Ten Commandments, I'm good. If I just believe God exists and keep the Ten Commandments, well, believing God exists is part of the equation here. However, in Hebrews 11, clarity comes when we see that by faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And if we didn't have that next sentence, you'd think, well, he pleased God. He did what was good. He obeyed. He did what was right. But the very next sentence says, and without faith, it is impossible to please God. Enoch was a man of faith. He walked by faith. 
He walked with God. One last stop on this little journey of faith is with Lamech himself. It's another Lamech, if you will. A second Lamech comes along. The first Lamech boasts only in himself. The second Lamech believes in the promise of God. Listen, verse 28. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech is clinging to the promise that through offspring, the head of the serpent will be crushed. It will be bruised. Victory will come. He says, out of the ground, this one will do it. I mean, does that strike anything in your mind? Out of the ground. Adam's taken out of the ground. Adam was supposed to actually do this whole head-crushing deal. Out of the ground. Out of the ground you were taken, he says to Adam. Out of the ground should make our eyebrows go up. We say, why is he saying this? Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief, rest, comfort from the painful toil. Now, what's that? Well, let me tell you something. This painful toil, the precise Hebrew here for painful toil, is found in two other verses in the entire Old Testament. And if you'll take your hand, take your right hand, lift it up, take the left page of your Bible and turn it, we will come to both verses. Sorry, just making sure you're paying attention still. That's good. Verse 16, to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbirth, in pain, you shall bring forth children. The painful pain that we talked about, multiplied pain, that's the word. The other one is just down from it, the end of verse 17. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. In other words, Lamech says, out of this one, this baby that I'm holding in my arms, Noah is going to bring us rest and relief from the curse that was put on man through sin, that God put the curse on man because of our sin. He's going to be the one who takes away the pain. He's going to be the one who brings rest. He's going to be the one who brings relief. He's going to be the one who crushes the serpent. He's going to be the one that reverses this whole awful trend that we're in. And he died. And he died. And he died. Lamech's faith is in the right promise. But it's not going to be this person. Because of Lamech, it says, and he died. Noah believe, Lamech believes the promise of God, though, to send a deliverer. He longs that his son will be that deliverer, though he isn't. But he is God's way of keeping the promise alive. A promise ultimately fulfilled in Jesus you see, just as there were two sons of Isaac, just as there were two sons of Abram, just as there were two sons of Adam, 
The Bible actually teaches us that there are two Adams. There is the one that we read of here in Genesis, the one who led humanity into sin. Through this one man came sin and death, and death spread to all men because all have sinned. But Jesus, the Bible teaches us, is the last Adam, the second Adam. Adam should have crushed the serpent's head and failed. Jesus did it. In life, Jesus resisted the devil's silly deceptions, resisted perfectly, cast out demons, exerted, showed his power over all that Satan has to offer. And then through his death, he crushes the head of the serpent. That's what Hebrews 2 says, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. Colossians 2 says he put all of the demonic forces to shame, to open public shame through his death on the cross. This victory over the devil is publicly proclaimed when Jesus is raised from the dead so that in an entire chapter on the resurrection, Paul will proclaim, as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. The reality is we are all born of that first Adam. We are all in Adam. We all bear the image of God, which is a glorious and wonderful and noble and good thing, but we also bear responsibility for our sin. We share in that sinfulness, and death is our only outcome except that Jesus came, and He lived in our place, and He died in our place, And he was raised from the dead so that all who are in Christ, meaning all who are in union with him, meaning all who are in relationship with him through faith in him, in his death and resurrection, we have eternal life. And death will not be the end of life. Jesus himself said of those who believe, those though he dies, yet shall he live. And then at the end of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Answer, it's gone. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So that over the one who believes in Jesus... It may still, yes, read at the end of this toilsome life, and he died, but there's not a period there. There's a comma, yet he lives. And he died, yet he lives. And she died, yet she lives. And if you are not trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, death is all that awaits. Not merely the death at the end of this physical life, but the second death which is eternal, conscious torment in hell.
the only way to escape that death is through faith in Jesus Christ. That by God's grace we be born again and embrace the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. If you know yourself to be in need of that Savior, I would encourage you even this morning to turn to Him by faith. If you want to talk about what that means, you can talk to any member of this church. You can come talk to me. Let's talk about what it means to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Will there be a period at the end of your obituary? Or will there be a comma? Yet she lives. Dear Christian, because Jesus has died and been raised again, we take heart. We, in a world of malignant tumors and broken relationships and natural disasters and frustrating work and a never-ending fight against sin and the long, dark, inescapable shadow of death, God remains faithful. God remains faithful in a world cursed by sin. Be encouraged by this truth. Stay steady and endure under trial. Walk by faith in the promises of God and not by the sight of the circumstances of life. Because if you do, then you will not walk hopelessly. You will walk as one who has hope. And then when you go to the end of the street, you'll be able to make a defense for the hope that is within you. Not just with words that you can find, but living words that have taken root in your heart and in your soul that you speak. God remains faithful. God remains faithful. God remains faithful. God remains faithful in a world cursed by sin. Amen. Let's take just a moment and bow our heads. We want to take a moment to reflect on the truth that God remains faithful in a world cursed by sin, to reflect on what the Bible teaches us here. If you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, I would exhort you to call on the name of the Lord, confess your sin, seek His forgiveness, plead for His mercy, come to Him by faith. If you are a believer, reflect on how the light of God's faithfulness pierces the darkness we see in the curse of sin all around us. And then after a few moments of reflection, I will pray.
Our Father, you are faithful. You are faithful when all that we see around us seems to be the curse of sin. It's reverberating effects in our bodies, in our work, in our lives, in our families, in our society, in this world. Yet you are faithful. You have faithfully sent one born of woman to bear the curse for us. You have faithfully sent Jesus Christ who became a curse for us. And we thank you for that faithfulness. We thank you that you faithfully indwell in us in the person of the Holy Spirit. God, thank you for the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are faithful to us when we are fickle. We thank you that the work that has begun in us will continue and will be completed at the last day. We thank you that because you have demonstrated your faithfulness over and over and over and over again, we can believe and have hope with confident hope, confident expectation of a future free from the curse of sin in this cursed world. We thank you that the last day will come and that there will be no more night and there will be no more mourning or pain or crying or death. We thank you that sin and its curse, which comes packed to our door, will have to pack up and leave. We are thankful that the curse will no longer hinder our fellowship with you. That it will be sweet, it will be perfect, it will be eternal, it will be complete. We are thankful that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We pray that will be the case for some today. And we pray that for those of us who have called on your name to save us, that we will walk by faith and not by sight, that we will be encouraged, that we will endure, and that we will live as those who have hope. We pray in the name of the one who has given us hope, our crucified and risen and ascended and reigning and coming again Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.